0: When Eugenides paused in the entranceway to the lesser throne room, those closest to him halted their conversations, puzzled to see a stranger in the doorway, then shocked when they recognized him. He looked older and unfamiliar after his absence. He'd had the barber clip his hair short again, and his right arm was hidden in a sling. As the court looked him over, silence spread away from the bottom of the stair into the throne room like a wave through a small pond and he stood immobilized by the stairs. At least the harvest was
1: good. Yeah, yeah, I heard it was pretty good this year. Cold out, isn't it?
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Yep.
1: You're listening to the Aetolian Archives, the Queen's Thief podcast for all you rereaders and nitpickers. I'm Noelle. And I'm Caitlin. It's January 27th, 2019, which
0: means that Return of the Thief is in only 51 days. That number just keeps getting smaller. Funny how that works. We interrupt this podcast we recorded yesterday to bring you breaking news. This morning on her Tumblr, Megan Wayland-Turner announced that Return of the Thief has, in fact, been pushed to summer of 2020. There were some rumblings about it on Twitter last night, some rumors. I was frantically emailing people from the bookstore that I work at, like, Ah, do you know anything about this? But we did get confirmation this morning from Megan on her Tumblr it's not gonna be for a while so let's all hunker down for the renewed long wait for book
1: six all right back to the episode i guess Today we're discussing the Queen of Atolia, chapter five, in which Jen gets out of bed, Atolia can't quite bring herself to get into hers, and an incidental minor character called Camet comes into play. Kamet, Kamet, Kamet,
0: Kamet, Kamet. We're so excited we have been <sighs> waiting for him to show up. We thought I thought that he showed up in like chapter
1: three or four? Yeah, the last few episodes you've been like, oh, Cam, it's coming next, Cam's coming next. (laughs) And then it hasn't been, but now he's here. There are a bunch of different things
0: going on in this chapter. The alternating perspectives are kind of in full swing now, which is cool because you can see parallels between... What's going on in Jen's world and what's going on in Natalia's world? There are these clear similarities that are happening. Both of them are spending a lot of time alone in their bedrooms. Mm-hmm. They're sitting up at night, looking out the window. Both are feeling isolated and haunted in some way, and so they're having these
1: parallel experiences to the same event. Yeah, basically, yeah, in reaction to the you same have event. To- This is what we're all supposed to be inferring from this, is that, like, why would Atolia be, excuse me, I have bronchitis. Sorry for the coughing. Um, That Caitlin is uh, is an American (laughs) hero and (laughs) is recording this podcast despite being nearly incapacitated. No, I'm no longer contagious anymore. Nobody worry for Noelle's health. (laughs) They're fine. (laughs) The germs are not going to come through the ether into your house, <laughs> through the microphone wires. That's how that works, isn't it? <laughs> also, Edith and atalia are already at war in this chapter, but Jen just doesn't know about it. Right, and we and- know about it because we have read
0: ahead like little cheaters, <laughs> but... There's nothing
1: to indicate in this chapter that there's a war going on. Well, there there are a few of those little hints that later Edith says, like, "Oh, you you could have seen, but you just shut your eyes." Like it's mentioned in here, like a a military messenger is riding out, right? And he doesn't he doesn't like show any curiosity about that, and then he goes to find the map weights when he's about to. Uh, relearn how to write, because he needs weights and to roll paper down, and there are only left. a couple map oh weights left. Oh my gosh,
0: left. I've never thought about that before. Yeah,
1: those are the things he was, he was kind of not curious about, because he was wrapped up in his own struggle, but he didn't think to wonder, why is the Queen too busy to come see me, except for every two weeks? And nobody in the court wants to talk to him about it. And that's part of why,
0: like, there, he goes to He actually leaves his room in this chapter and he goes to a couple of court dinners. And at the dinners, everybody is just sitting in painful silence until someone talks about the weather. And that's a general awkwardness around him. But also, I think people don't want to talk to
1: him about the war. Mm -hmm. And so they're searching desperately for anything else to say. Like, we never find this out, but is the reason they don't bring up the war the fact that they know he doesn't know about it yet and they don't want to let him in on it because that's not, like, their place? Or do they assume he knows about it and they just don't want to bring it up because he's the cause? Mm. It could be either. No one knows
0: how to react to Jen Mm -hmm. right now. Yeah. He's almost like a ghost walking around. And I think people expect that he will never be involved in politics or in court life really again Mm -hmm. Uh, and that he will always kind of exist in this limbo state now and so it maybe doesn't even occur to people to talk to him about the war because that's no longer
1: relevant to him even though Mm. it's about him yeah that could be it Later in the chapter, when a tailor comes to fit him for new clothes so he can go down to dinner um, for a brief paragraph, the narration is from the tailor's point of view, uh, just going over the rumors that he had heard about Eugenides, saying that he'd probably die soon and the whole city grieving as if he were already gone and that vicious bitch of Atolia to blame. So I think we can infer from this that no one thinks he's going to like make it out of this Yeah. They think he's either dying or, like, a wreck forever. And (laughs) Jen has become
0: uh, a a symbol of Odyssean victimhood at the hands of Atolia. Yeah. Uh, That vicious bitch of Atolia, which (laughs) 8 to 12 age range, ladies
1: and gentlemen. Let's just mention that one more time. (laughs) Yeah, if if we're not mistaken, this is the first instance of actual profanity used in the series, which I think just really, like, that's another tonal shift. The, the, this series really does not have that much profanity at all, but, like, this is just mm-hmm. an, an indication of this is how strongly the Edesians feel about Atolia at this point. And the stakes have been raised talking. in general. Right.
0: Yeah. An image that I find really interesting in this sequence with Jen and the continuation of his recovery is he finally gets up and he starts poking around his desk and it says he stood up to poke at the papers at the back of the desk but the medical detritus took up too much space for there to be any room for sorting. At some point ink had spilled across the text he'd been copying, obscuring the left half of a long paragraph. And so Jen is so consumed by this event that he can't look forward or backward everything that he had been doing before the 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 text that he'd been copying has had ink spilled all over it and he can't see his desk because there's pills and medications and bandages he can't see his life anymore mm-hmm. it has all been disrupted and that the tragedy and the the change has come into this place, which was a safe space for him. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to Atolia, who is also hanging around being sad for <laughs> most of this. Even though she obviously knows there's a war going on because she's the one waging it. Mm-hmm. But in her parts of this chapter, there's also no mention of it.
1: Yeah, you only ever, you only see her preoccupied with eugenities throughout the entire chapter. Yeah, and to it's the, to it's the, her
0: very like private insular life.
1: Yeah, and we also see um, that this preoccupation of hers is seen as unusual in Huzurish's mm-hmm. eyes. Um, he sneaks into a meeting she's having with Relius without being announced, and he hears the end of her. Conversation with Aurelius about the thief and is he recovering and what's he doing? Mm-hmm. And then later, when Nehusrish is talking to Kamet, he says, uh, We'll tell the Emperor that we hope her preoccupation with her Edesian thief mm-hmm. lasts while we work. Also, just kind of interesting that at th- this point in the text, she's he's called her Edesian thief. Like that made me yeah. stop for a minute <laughs> in this reread.
0: <laughs> interesting. We had talked at the beginning of this book about the idea of performance in this book specifically and thinking about when is Atolia performing and who is she performing for and I think that this scene with Nehuseresh where he sneaks in is a really good example of that Mm -hmm. because she's so happy to see him, she lets him kiss her hand she's very receptive to him and there's nothing even in her presumably in perspective narration to indicate that she is suspicious of him in any way until the very very end of that scene when she low key tells Relius to figure out how the hell he got into the room unannounced yeah and so we know only subtly that she is aware that he might be working against her and there's it's so, like, her performance is so pervasive that it's even difficult to see from her point of view.
1: Yeah. In her narration, it says how uh, the Mead ambassador was a remarkably attractive man, she thought, or he would be were it not for his beard, etc. Like, what we get from her is that um, just that she finds the Mead ambassador attractive, and mm-hmm. that's something that Megan uses throughout the book to try to to kind of throw us off the scent of, like, that's mentioned in Atolia's thoughts over and over again, but then you find out later, like... Yeah, she's pulling one over on us. I do think... Very clever. I think Mm -hmm.
0: that Megan Wayland Turner cheats just a little bit in this one. Because normally, the withheld information in the narration is because somebody is telling their own story, and... They're choosing to withhold something from us Or there's something that we're not seeing For kind of an in-universe reason But this book is all Third person Shifting point of view Omnuscent. And so when we don't know something It's because The author has decided Not to give it to us mm-hmm. And so she can kind of Play fast and loose and And, and trick you
1: In a way that does feel a little bit like, "Mm, okay, (laughs) to me. (laughs) Um, Something else in this scene we get that's very intriguing is Atolia tells Nehusrish and Relius, I met his grandfather once many years ago, meaning Eugenides' grandfather, the previous Eudesian thief. He told me that a thief's greatest asset like a queen's was his mind. Another Jan-Atollia parallel. Yes. Also, I would love a short story about that. She says, yeah. she says uh, they met when she was a princess of no particular importance. She wasn't even queen. Write that then, fan fiction, people. Yeah. I want it oh, on my desk by Monday. <laughs> One other
0: detail that I like here is at the very beginning of... Atolia's bit in this chapter, it mentions that during the summer, she can hear the wheels of farmers' carts from her bedroom window because the windows are open, which is just another little detail that emphasizes how small these places are. These are little city-states. Her palace is right next to just the road. Her bedroom window, she can hear the, the road where people are walking around and doing stuff. And... So there's, like, this contrast between this really opulent uh, and isolated palace life, which is very real, and also how close it is Mm -hmm. to everybody else. Yeah. And so I guess what I take away from that is how constructed and maybe even fragile these social systems are.
1: Yeah. Lastly from this scene is she explains that um, Eugenides' title is hereditary and she says it could go to the child of one of his sisters. So previously uh, we had read that and we had kind of thought that was more like hypothetical, Mm -hmm. but on this I I think this means that at least two sisters of his do have actual children because if it's a hereditary title it could go to the child of his brothers also. Mm -hmm. So wouldn't she have said siblings? But so I think this means that Jen really is an uncle at this point. (gasps) Which is like... Give me the sisters! (gasps) Where are they? We talked... I don't want to spam you guys with our... Family longing, which I feel like we've been doing. But, so we can move on now, but just another detail Here's our finally our, picked up. At least once an episode, yes. we have
0: to say, please give us the sisters. Last but not least, Kamet <laughs> He's introduced as the secretary of the Mead ambassador, and you don't know that he's a slave at first. He's just the secretary. Mm-hmm. And you see that they have a very cordial relationship.
1: Yeah, but you get the sense, or I got the sense anyway, that, um... Hmm, I don't know exactly how I want to put this. Like, they're on good terms. And he also, he inputs into the conversation. It's It does not read, at first, like a conversation between two very unequal people. Mm-hmm. It doesn't read like the power dynamic is incredibly skewed. But then all of a sudden, we get, they don't have many
0: slaves here, I could run away and make myself a free man, which is A, foreshadowing, and B, uh, like, a very disturbing thing, because Kamet says it as a joke, and then Nahushiresh jokes back, oh, I'd find you, but obviously there's a tremendous threat yeah. in that exchange, and, like, all of a sudden, the violence that's... uh an undercurrent in this relationship becomes
1: a little bit visible. Right. Yeah, something I wanted to bring up about that is that Kamet's the one who brought that up saying they don't have many slaves here and then he's the one who actually made the joke, I could run away. Um. Obviously, living that reality would be, like you said, there is a huge undercurrent of violent in their violence in their relationship as we find out later. So joking about it might be a way for Kamet to kind of uh diffuse some of that tension. But yeah. also like Kamet's relationship with Nahushish uh I feel like Kamet really has to How do I put this? Like he needs to feel like he has a good, cordial, friendly loving relationship with N'Husrish in order to deal with this awful situation. Yeah, that it's he's a survival in. tactic. It's a survival mechanism. You're right. It's a defense mechanism, mm-hmm. like, mentally. Um, for much of Thick as Thieves, or at least the beginning in the first half, his perspective on N'Husrish is kind of saying, like, oh, I know how to handle him. Mm-hmm. Like, it's it's not as unequal as all that. Like, maybe he did beat me up, but like, we had a lot of good times together. So, like, Yeah, and making this joke Mm -hmm. is his way of... Because
0: otherwise it might be, uh, like, an unspoken tension. Right. And he needs to make sure that I know that you know that I could think this. And I need
1: you to know that I think it's ridiculous. Right. And we can joke about this. It's fine. Yeah. You know, it's just too ridiculous to even imagine that I would run away. Just reinforcing, like, oh, I'm I'm not going to run away. Because we know from Thickest Seas that he has... He did really, in earnest, talk about running away with Layla. Yeah, and that's when Nahusharish almost killed him. So bringing this up as a joke is kind of uh, like you're safe. I'm not gonna try it again. Measure. Yeah, I wouldn't we, say
0: we're we've,
1: we're like on good terms now.
0: Yeah. The other really interesting thing about this conversation between Kamet and Nahusharish that we were talking about a little bit before we started recording is that. When they're talking about the plans that they have, Nehusiresh brings up the Baron arendides and he wants Kamet to ingratiate himself with the servants in Baron Arendides household. And so our question is, what exactly was Nehusiresh planning to do with arendides Because we know from King of Atolia that arendides is like a... a large wealthy household with a lot of land mm-hmm. and that they're a big threat yet yeah.
1: and so we were wondering if anything planned between Huishrish and Arendides comes to fruition between now and King of Atolia when Jen or i guess i mean even past King of Atolia because we know from yeah. the summary of return of the thief that Arendides is still is oh, yeah, he's going to come back like doing something <laughs> return of the Erendides. <laughs> yeah.
0: What really makes me fall in love with Kamet on the reread is that Nehushresh says that Atolia has the most appealing of feminine virtues, especially in a queen. She's easily led. She's held the throne for some time,
1: the secretary said cautiously. We know from Thickest Thieves that Nehushresh has enormously underestimated Kamet's what seems to be their entire lives together. So mm-hmm. this is just this is another indication first of all that Camet is more than he appears and second of all that
0: he's... And that Kamet is observant yeah. and uh, yeah. shrewd and he's observed the situation and he knows that Atolia is a force to be reckoned with mm-hmm. and he can't say it but he's storing that information away for a rainy day That's chapter five. Next week, Jen gets a message from the gods that
1: changes, well, something. Did you notice anything about this chapter that we didn't? Send us your comments, questions, thoughts. Chime in at atolianarchives.tumblr.com. Be Be blessed blessed in your endeavors. Thank you
0: for listening. This is an amateur embroidery production. Rate and review us on Tell your friends. I know that we're definitely a niche thing, but let's try and get as many people from the niche as possible in on it, because it's more fun that way. Uh, we love ya. Keep reading, and remember, never trust a horse.